Amen. You may be seated. Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The title of the message this morning is, The Gospel Changes Everything. This is what the book of Romans is all about. It is all about the good news of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us. One scholar said that the book of Romans is the most complete and clear explanation of the gospel found in the Bible. And I agree with this statement, that the book of Romans is the most complete and clear explanation of the gospel found in the Bible. The word gospel in the original language is the word euangelion. Euangelion, it means good news. It is good news. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not a bunch of tips for life, a bunch of how-to instructions on how to live. I I love how-to instructions. I love how-to videos, but that's not what the gospel is. The problem is when we read the Bible looking for tips to solve our problems. This is one approach to reading the scriptures that is very common, that people will say, I don't know what to do with my life, so I'm going to open up the Bible and I'm going I'm to look for a bunch of tips on how to solve the problems I'm dealing with. And I think that's a fine approach. The problem is that if we don't get any deeper, if we don't understand what the Bible is about, we can miss the entire point of the Bible. Fundamentally, the Bible is not about you. Fundamentally, the Bible is not about what you can do for God. The Bible is about God. And the Bible is about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 1, he's describing the gospel of God, the good news of God. In verses 1 through 7, we see the seeds of the gospel that Paul plants, and these seeds are going to grow up and sprout and bloom over the course of these next 16 chapters. So that by the time we are done with the book of Romans, in about 10 years or so, I think it's going to take us about 10 years uh, to work through the book of Romans, not, not really, it'll probably take us two years, but by the time we're done with the book of Romans, we will see more clearly the glory of God and the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. So let's dive into Romans chapter 1, and there are three simple truths about the gospel that I want to point out to you to help us gain a better understanding of what the gospel is. So let's start with truth number one, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the gospel. Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Christianity is not a new religion. Christianity did not originate with the Apostle Paul. Uh, The apostles did not dream up the gospel or the gospel message. Rather, it is rooted in eternity past. The gospel is the eternal plan of God to redeem the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And this message, the good news of God, was promised in the Old Testament. And this truth of the promise of the gospel found in the Old Testament should shape the way we think about the Old Testament. So often what happens is that people, uh, they're unwilling to look at the Old Testament or they're not interested in looking into the Old Testament because it can be uncomfortable or we don't know quite what to do with the Old Testament and so we just pick up the New Testament. And I think it's fine. Uh, You're you're not going to go wrong if you just start reading the Bible. That's a good thing to do. But it takes a whole Bible to make a mature Christian. We need to think rightly about the Old Testament. So how should we think about the Old Testament? Well, first, we should see that the Old Testament is the Word of God. The Old Testament is the Word of God. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And we need to notice the flow of thought in verse 2. The gospel of God 
which he, being God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the God that we worship is a speaking God. He's a God who speaks. But how does he speak to us? Does he speak to us just by showing up and directly talking to us? Not really. I mean, he, he can. He's free to do that. But we ought not to expect that to be the norm in the Christian life. So how does God speak to us? Well, he speaks to us through his prophets. Do you see this in verse 2? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So God speaks through his prophets. And then what the prophets say, it is recorded in the Holy Scriptures. It is recorded in the Bible. So if you want to hear God speak, we are to read the word of God. We are to look at what God has said in his word. So we should view the Old Testament as the word of God. Number two, the Old Testament points to the gospel. It points to the gospel. So when we're reading the Old Testament, how should we think about the Old Testament? Well, we should see that the Old Testament is looking ahead to the gospel of grace. He says in verse two, which he promised, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament is pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the theme of every chapter in the Bible. He is the point of every passage. Jesus is the creator of the universe in Genesis 1.1. Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm in Genesis 9. Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. He is the burning bush in the desert appearing to Moses, Exodus chapter 3. He is the Passover lamb which saves the people of God, Exodus chapter 12. Jesus is the serpent who is lifted high in the desert, Numbers 21. He is the scarlet cord in the window at Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. Everything in the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices, the ceremonial law, the law, everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Andy Stanley, who is one of the most famous pastors in our country, he once said that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. He says, hey, if you're, if you're thinking about Christ and you're bothered by the Old Testament, just unhitch yourself from, from the Old Testament. You don't need to connect the Old Testament to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And my response to that is that we shouldn't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Instead, we should unhitch ourselves from Andy Stanley. Like, we should unhitch ourselves from that way of thinking because the scriptures, the scriptures belong to God. They are the very word of God. The Old Testament and New Testament are the very words of God. This is why our strategy as a church is to teach through the Bible. What do we do when we gather together? We sing, we worship the Lord, we take communion, we observe baptism, and we hear the word of God taught. This is a significant reason we are to gather. The entire Bible is pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament, Old Testament anticipates Jesus. The Old Testament promises Jesus, and the New Testament reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity did not originate with the Apostle Paul. It originated all the way in eternity past in the mind of the triune God. Truth number two is the person of the gospel. So we have the promise of the gospel, and then we have the person of the gospel, verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse three, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is not a bunch of good ideas. It's not what the gospel is. The gospel is good news about what Christ has done. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, it's going to take the entire letter to more fully understand who Jesus is. But Paul, in these opening verses, gives us four insights 
into the character and nature of Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. This speaks to his deity, his deity. The term Son of God is more than a name. It is an official title. To claim to be the, not just a child of God, but to claim to be the Son of God is the claim to be God. This is why the Pharisees killed Jesus. Why did they put Jesus to death? What, what was his crime? What mistake did he make? Well, they, they didn't kill Jesus for anything that he did. They killed him because of who he claimed to be. In Luke chapter 22, we see that the Sanhedrin had Jesus arrested, and now Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin are the 70 most influential Jewish people in the world at that time. And they are gathered to condemn Jesus. And they ask him this question. They all ask him, are you then the son of God? Are you the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Their response, why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. They knew that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, and therefore he was claiming to be God. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe Jesus is God. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe that Jesus is God. If you believe that Jesus is a great teacher, if you believe that Jesus is a great leader, if you believe Jesus is a great humanitarian, that's fine. But if you do not believe that he is God, you cannot be a Christian. And the good news of the gospel is not good news unless Jesus Christ is God. What news would there be? He's just a dude who lived and died. If he is not God, become a man for our benefit. There is no good news. So Jesus is the son of God. Number two, Jesus is a descendant of David. He is a descendant of David. This speaks to the humanity and incarnation of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, verses 1 and 2 say, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. The claim is that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, became a man. The incarnation of Jesus Christ and the humanity of Jesus Christ is central to the gospel message. And over thousands of years, there are billions of people who have marveled at the claim that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. He became one of us. In the year 1510, about 500 years ago, uh, Raphael, not the turtle, but the artist, he created a piece of art, a very famous piece of art. And here's, here's the painting. Does anyone know what this is called? It's called the Madonna and Child. The Madonna and Child. Mary and Jesus. Mary and Jesus. Now, when you look at Jesus here, what stands out to you? What, what do you notice here about Jesus? Well, first, he's plump. Um, he's, he's well-fed, which is a good thing. But then what else do you notice? He's a baby. He's a baby. And Raphael, part of the reason this piece of art has stood the test of time is because this painting is trying, not perfectly, we could criticize this all day long, but he's trying to capture the mystery of the incarnation, that God became a man. He became a human being. It's not unique to find a picture of a mother with her child. That's not unique. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not all that noteworthy. But see, this is trying to capture the essence of the incarnation, the eternal creator becoming a man. And remember, Jesus is truly man. He is truly God and truly man. He's not part God, part man. 
He's not a little bit of God, a little bit of man. He is truly God and truly man. Jesus is as human as you are. He is as human as you are, which is an incredible thing to think about. He he is as human as, as we are, yet he did not sin. He lived a perfect life. Jesus is the perfect human being, the perfect man. So why did God become a man? For, for what reason did God become a man? I mean, just for fun? Why did he do this? Well, this is the third truth about Jesus, is that Jesus died. Jesus died. Between verses three and four, we see the death of Jesus. Now, if you read those verses, you're gonna say, I don't see anything about Jesus dying here. Well, you gotta read it and think about it. Paul is going to claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and you cannot rise from the dead unless you first die, that Jesus died. He died. This is why Jesus became a human being. Why did he come? He came, he became a man to die. See, we think about life. We we, we wanna live, we wanna live, we wanna live, we wanna live, and we fear death. We don't want to die, but see, Jesus came. The whole purpose Jesus came was to die, to die in the place of sinners. When Jesus became a human being, he became killable. There's no way to kill the second person of the Trinity you, you could, there's no way you could ever, you can't do anything to him. But see, when he became a man, he took on flesh. He took on weakness. And he became one of us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Think about that. The Son of Man did not come to be served. When he became a man, entered into our world, he didn't walk around saying, wash my feet. Serve me, serve me. He did not do that. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He's the one who got down and washed the feet of his disciples. He is the one one who washed the feet of his enemy, Judas, the one who would betray him. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what the Old Testament promises. Remember, the gospel is not a new idea. It is the eternal plan of God that the Son of God, the Messiah, would die in the place of sinners. Die in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53 was written about 700 years before Jesus ever lived. That's a long time, 700 years. And that's about 2,700 years from where we are today. The United States has been around for about 250 years as a nation, 250 years. But this was written 2,700 years ago and 700 years before Jesus lived. And yet Isaiah predicts the way that Jesus Christ would die 700 years before he became a man. Verse three, Isaiah 53, three. He was despised and rejected by men. How did human beings treat Christ, the God who became a man? How did human beings treat him? He was despised. Do you know if Jesus had been born now, he he wasn't born 2,000 years ago, if he was born now, do you know what we would do to him? We would hate him. We would despise him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. We saw him walking on the street or down the same side of the street. We would cross over so we wouldn't have to look at him unless unless he was gonna heal us, unless we wanted to get something from him. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. We said he's nothing. Verse four, yet he himself bore our sicknesses Even though we despised him and rejected him, he bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. 
but he was pierced. Why? This is the prediction of his death, that he would be pierced. He would die by being pierced. His hands and feet were pierced with nails. His side was pierced with a spear. He was pierced. Why? For his sin? No, he had no sin to pay for it. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Humanity has a wound that cannot be healed by more education. You look at the world, you recognize the world is all messed up. The the world is broken. And we recognize that we're wounded and that education is not the solution. What will solve the problem of sin, the brokenness in in the world? Is it more education? No way. Is it more money? No way. More pleasure? More fun? Do people just need to get what they want more and then they will be healed? No way. Humanity has a wound that can only be healed by the blood of Christ. How are we made whole? How are we forgiven? How are we reconciled to God? By the blood of Christ, his death for for us on our behalf. Verse six, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him, why? See, this explains what's going on at the cross. Jesus is being punished at the cross. Why is Jesus being punished if he has no sin? He's being punished for the iniquity of us all. It's because my lying demands death. You're lying that you, you don't like to admit, that we don't like to admit when we lie. We just say it's not a big deal. We sweep it under the rug. God does not do that. When we steal, when we lust, when we're sexually immoral, when we're proud, when we cut people down, the wages of sin is death. It all leads to condemnation and death. And at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was condemned in our place. He faced death for us, and he truly died. But that's not where the story ends. The fourth truth about Jesus to notice is that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, verse 4. And we need to notice how verse 4 is constructed. It's incredible. Verse 4. And was appointed. He was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The first word to notice in verse four is the word appointed. It's the word, Greek word, horizo, horizo. It means to mark out the boundaries or limits. It's where we get our word horizon. So here's a picture of the horizon. The horizon is the place where the sky and the sea or the sky and the earth appear to meet. That's the horizon. That's where they meet. And this word horizo meant to mark something out, to delineate between two things. It's right there. That's the point. So what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God, the Father, is marking his son. He's saying, this is my son. Here he is, the one who I've raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is my son. This is so significant because in the Jewish mind, The idea of the Messiah dying, being defeated by their enemies, the Romans, was unthinkable. That was the sign that Jesus could not be the Messiah. It's that he died. But Paul says, no, 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 I understand. I understand the challenge that is. He died, but he didn't stay dead. The spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, raised Christ from the dead. And when Christ was raised from the dead, this is the the sign from heaven. God saying, this is my son. How do you know Jesus is the son of God? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Throughout history, 
Throughout human history, many have claimed to be God in the flesh. Many have claimed to be able to do miracles. Many claim extraordinary wisdom from above. But I've noticed that everyone who claims to be God in the flesh, they all die and they stay dead. Jesus Christ rose. He rose from the dead. The resurrection is a unique event in human history. Marking, this is God marking Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 4, and he was appointed to be the powerful Son of God. I love that. He didn't become the, the Son of God, but he was marked, appointed to be the powerful Son of God. Jesus lived in weakness as a man. He still is a man, resurrected from the dead. But when he walked around earth, he experienced incredible weakness, humiliation. I mean, they spit in his face. They ripped out his beard. They put na nails in his hands and his feet. They put a crown of thorns on his head. People lied about him. People slandered him. They said he does what he does by the power of Satan. He lived in incredible weakness. But when he rose from the dead, God's marking him as the powerful son of God. No more weakness, triumph, victory over sin and death and Satan. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who rules the world. Who rules the world? Jesus rules the world. Who's in charge of every nation? Jesus is in charge of every nation. He is in charge of all things, down to the very smallest atom in the universe. He rules over all things. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. This is a big reason why the Apostle Paul calls Jesus Christ our Lord. How should we think about Jesus? He is our Lord. He's not our boy. He, he's not, have you seen those t-shirts? Jesus is my homeboy. Have you seen those t-shirts before? He's not your homeboy. <laughs> he's not your homeboy. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over all. Truth number three, the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel. So the person of the gospel is Jesus Christ. What about the purpose? Why does he, why does he do all of this? Well, here's a summary statement, just as I was studying. Here's a summary statement of the purpose of the gospel. And remember, this is week one of a, of a very long series. So there's no way to capture everything in, in, in one sentence. But this is the idea. What's the purpose of the gospel? The purpose of the gospel is that the whole world, okay, just think about this. The purpose of the gospel is that the whole world would receive grace to the glory of Christ. The whole world would receive grace to the glory of Christ. Where do we see this? Verse 5. Through him we have received grace. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of, of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. All the Gentiles. So the, the way that it works is that the whole world has fallen under the curse of sin. If you're a human being, you're under the curse of sin. Sin has touched every aspect of our life. And we have no hope. Human beings, we have no hope as human beings in and of ourselves. If, if we are to be redeemed, we are to be redeemed by someone outside of ourselves. We need someone who has overpowered sin and death. And Christ came into the world that the whole world, all the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles, the whole world might receive the grace of God for the sake of his name, that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be worshiped 
all over the world, in our city, in our state, in our nation, and all over the world. I mean, when you go to places that don't know Christ, I mean, like our city, people don't know Christ, but when you're in an environment where Christ is not named, he's not honored, he's not exalted, it's a shame. Because if people don't have the Son of God, if people don't have Christ, they have no life. And so Paul says, through him we have received grace. We have received grace. And let me tell you, human beings, you know what we need? We need the grace of God. You know what you need? You need the grace of God. What I need is the grace of God. The Christian life is not about achieving anything for God. It's not about achieving anything for ourselves. The Christian life, fundamentally, is about receiving the grace of God. We are recipients of his grace. If you are a Christian, it is because of the grace of God. Why are you a Christian? You are, you are a Christian because of the grace of God. We cannot save ourselves. John 1.16 says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. I love that. We have received not just a little bit of grace. Through the coming of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, we haven't received just a little bit of his grace. We have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. We have received outrageous grace. What is grace? What is grace? Milton Vincent said, grace is the unearned and ill-earned favor of God. I love that definition. It's my favorite definition. Grace is the unearned and ill-earned favor of God. What does that mean? That grace is the unearned and ill-earned favor of God. Well, I want you to imagine that someone is driving drunk. Someone's driving drunk. This call, let's say he's a 20-year-old young man named Billy. He's driving drunk, 100 miles per hour, swerves off the road. He hits your house in the middle of the night. And you get up in the middle of the night and you figure out what's going on. You're like, why is there a car in my living room? What's, what's going on here? And you look and much of your house is destroyed. It's destroyed. And then you keep looking around and you discover that your one and only son is dead. He's been killed by a drunk driver crashing into your house. Now, justice would be getting what you deserve. Justice would be getting what you deserve. Justice would be Billy, the drunk driver, getting what he deserved. Now, what would that be? Punishment. The death penalty, life in prison, whatever that is. Justice is getting what you deserve. And if Billy got what he deserved, he would be in big, big, big trouble. But what about mercy? What does it mean to extend mercy? What would it mean to extend mercy to Billy? Well, mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's when you deserve punishment, but you're not punished. So mercy would be looking at Billy, saying, Billy, okay, what you did is terrible. I'm not gonna press charges. I'm gonna wipe your slate clean. Your debt is forgiven. It's gone. You're free. It is to extend forgiveness. This is why in Christ, we can know the mercy of God. In fact, Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. He is the mercy of God for us, that through the blood of Christ, we can be forgiven. That is to have all of our sins which have stained us and screwed up our lives and corrupted us deeply, all of our sins, our past sins, and our present sins and our future sins, all of those sins are wiped away by the blood of Christ. To know Christ is to know the mercy of God. But see, grace is different than justice, and it's more than mercy. What God extends to us 
is more than mercy. What is mercy? Grace is the unearned and ill-earned favor of God. Grace would be, as a dad, to go to Billy and say, what you did, Billy, or what you did, Billy, is terrible. You drove drunk, you smashed in my house, and you killed my son, and I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to wipe your debt clean, and it looks like you need a car. My son had a car. You can have his. And my son is dead. And I would like to adopt you into my family and make you the heir of everything that I own. You'd say, wait a second. Billy doesn't deserve that. Of course. Of course, see, see Billy has earned the opposite. Grace is the ill-earned favor of God. And see, if God gave us justice, we would stand in the presence of God. All of our sins would be exposed. We'd be condemned as sinners. We'd be sentenced to hell forever. If you got justice, that's what you deserve. That's what you would get. You'd get hell, separation from God forever. You say, well, you don't know how good of a person I am. I do. I already know. Like, we're all sinful. The standard is holiness. The standard is perfection. We none of us meet that standard. So if God gave us justice, we would all die and go to hell. Mercy would be God simply forgiving our sins, which is a glorious thing to be forgiven. But see, God hasn't just given us mercy. The Lord Jesus Christ is the grace of God for us. See, it's the grace of God that makes us sons. It's the grace of God that invites us in, that forgives us all of our sins, that clothes us in the very righteousness of God. It's the grace of God that makes us sons and daughters of God, makes us heir over all things. And you think, well, I don't deserve that. Of course. <laughs> we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But see, this is what God has done for us. If Christ really is the Son of God, and he really did die, and he really did rise, then we really are forgiven. And we stand in a position of grace. We stand as sons before God. And see, when you taste the grace of God, it changes everything. When you understand the grace of God, it changes absolutely everything. And this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul tasted the grace of God. The Apostle Paul, he grew up in the Jewish world. He was a Roman citizen, but he was a Jewish man. He knew the, the law better than almost anyone who's ever lived. He memorized the law of God. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was wealthy. He had status. He had money. He had, he had influence. And he was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. He went after Christians. He had Christians beaten up. He had Christians arrested. He had Christians put into prison, and he had Christians executed, murdered. And when Paul was on his way to go terrorize more Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. But see, Jesus did not appear to the Apostle Paul to judge him. Jesus Christ appeared to him to save him. He appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and it was then where the Apostle Paul realized who Jesus Christ was and what he had done from him, for him. And that changed his entire life. See, it's through the gospel. It's through the gospel that God turns his enemies into friends. It's in the, it's in the gospel that God turns rebels into sons. 
It's in the gospel that we are forgiven and made brand new. And none of that is anything that we deserve. We don't deserve any of that. We deserve the exact opposite. And when you taste the grace of God, everything changes. Now, why, why does the good news not sound like good news to some of you? If you're here this morning, you're thinking, okay, the good news, this doesn't sound very good. I remember uh, years ago when one of my little boys was about five years old, I got home and he came up to me and he goes, dad, dad, I have, I have some good news. I have good news, dad. I have good news. I said, what is it? And he goes, dad, I've decided I want Pokemon cards for Christmas. And I thought, that doesn't sound like good news to me. Like, I get to buy you Pokemon cards now? That's just not good news. Some of you, you hear about the good news of what Christ has done, and you're like, it's kind of like Pokemon cards. Wow, cool. That's great. But see, why do you think that way? You think that way probably because you don't know the depth of your sin. You don't agree with the judgment of God. That you're worthy of death and separation from God in hell. You think you're a good person. See, the enemy of grace is your own righteousness, your own goodness. You think, no, no, I'm a, I'm, look, at all these, look at all these morons over here. I'm, I, got it, I'm, I got it together. But see, if you think you're good, the grace of God will never touch your heart. It'll never transform your life. But when you see the grace of God, you see, oh, man, I am... I am a sinner in need of grace, and God has done for me what I can never do for myself. It turns your world upside down. This is largely why the Apostle Paul says this in verse 1. Look at how he thinks about himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant is doulos, bondservant, voluntary slave. That's what it means. Paul says, I'm a voluntary slave. I'm not, I'm not going to be a slave of my sin anymore. I'm not going to be a slave to my passions anymore. I'm not going to be a slave to the world anymore. I am a slave of the resurrected Jesus Christ who saved my soul. And see, this is what grace does to the human heart. It changes you. Now, many of you here this morning, you are already Christians, and I hope that God has used our time in Romans 1 to stir up your faith, to, to encourage your heart. But some of you are not Christians. And in order to become a Christian, you have to recognize your need for grace and say, I can never save, for my, save myself. And see, when you put your faith in Christ, you commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you come with your hands empty. You say, I have nothing, God, I can do to save myself. When you come to him in humility with your hands open and you recognize, I'm saved by the person, Jesus Christ, God saves you. God saves you. And so if you don't know Christ, I would encourage you to turn to Christ today, to commit your life to him, and he will change your life. And it's been a good weekend just for my own soul, hearing all of these testimonies about what God has done for us. And as a church, we want to keep hearing the testimonies of how God is still saving people today. And so if you don't know Christ, I would encourage you, commit your life to him. Let him change you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you. For all that you've done for us, we thank you for your grace. What an incredible reality, the grace of God.